Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Those verses were read for us earlier that we are going to be looking at this morning. This is a summary section that we're looking at as we come to the end of chapter 4. Peter is going to say some familiar things to us. The whole book has been about unjust suffering, suffering just because you did something right, suffering because you take a stand for Christ, suffering because you're a, one who identifies with Christ and one who calls yourself a Christian. That's what this theme, main theme has been of this epistle. The historical context I went over earlier as we entered into this study, but let me just remind you that Christians were very unpopular in the Roman Empire. Nero, in fact, had blamed them for the burning of Rome. This is about the same time frame that we're talking about here. Christians were already a little bit unpopular even before he blamed them. They were sort of viewed as cannibals because they would drink the blood of Jesus and eat his flesh. That figurative language they said we were doing literally in our love feast, and we would sit in private and do that. They accused uh, Christians of breaking up families. They say that uh, you cause wives to go one way from the, away from their husbands because they believe in Jesus. You worship a false god. We've got lots of gods. You've just got one. What is that all about? They thought of us as a, Christians as a Jewish sect, and Jews were already unpopular. And so this is just more of that. Christians talked about a coming judgment. Maybe they were the ones responsible for that fire because they're looking for a coming judgment, a king, someone other than Caesar. Persecution was new to the Gentile Christians, but it really wasn't new to the Jewish Christians. They had already experienced persecution. So persecution was a little new to them, this being ostracized, this being hated, this being called a criminal against the empire. We all of these things. Hating Christianity became a fixed policy of the Roman government. If you follow from Nero on about 200 years forward in history, from the time of Nero, all of the Roman emperors from then on began persecuting Christians. It became very much part of the government. And if you were going to follow Christ, you must count the cost. You must count the cost. It's very costly. You have to be prepared in this context especially. You had to be prepared to die. Because that may be exactly what happened. To even call yourself a Christian, that was a crime. And so First Peter's written right at the beginning of all that, and it's going to get more intense even after the first century. 
And so this suffering unjustly, that theme just runs through. And Peter is preparing these Christians. Peter is teaching these Christians how to respond to that. This is a how-to manual, how to live in the midst of all this. How do we do it? His focus is been on such things as motivating them to look to the second coming. It won't always be like this. Let that be what pulls you forward. Let that hope be what gives you confidence and, and encouragement. Be careful how you live. You want to keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers because you want to use this time that you're here to reach them with the truth of the gospel and make it valid as they see your changed life. This is our opportunity to reach the unbelieving world. Don't go hide and, and just go silent, but keep on reaching out. And so today he kind of, he said a lot of that, and he's going to kind of just give a summary of that, a few new things possibly. But I want you to understand something about persecution and about unjust suffering. This only happens, this only happens when you are visibly righteous. What do I mean by that? It only happens when you are seeking, as a Christian, you are seeking to live a godly life in an ungodly culture. That's when it happens, when it is something that you do that goes against the grain of the culture. When you say something that goes against the grain of the culture, when you are visible in that way, when you live a certain way that goes against the grain of the culture, they are offended by that. When you make decisions because of your Christianity, because of Christ, that go against the thinking of the world, when it's visible like that, it brings persecution. When you say things that in their minds are not politically correct, or culturally correct, but they're truth. You speak the truth. It's visible. They hear it coming from your lips. That's the persecution we're talking about. Folks, you can avoid persecution by never saying anything. Invisible. Just stay invisible to the world. Don't ever let the world know what you think. Don't ever let the world know that you belong to Christ, and you will not face opposition from the world. In fact, they prefer that. They prefer that. In fact, they want to do that. They don't want you to say anything. They don't want you to speak up about anything. I'm not saying go looking for persecution, but I am saying that when we are visible, we bring and invite persecution. It creates hostility. And so if you hide your testimony, if you hide your testimony, you won't experience that. As we see our country changing and becoming more intolerant of the Christian faith and people just seeking an amoral lifestyle, no morals whatsoever, we will become a greater threat. And that's the reason this, this book is such a practical book for us in our lifetime. And we need to take these words to heart. And I realize I've been saying a lot about this subject for several weeks, and 
Uh, and if you're seeking to live to be a faithful believer, you're going to come back to this book, I believe, often in the days ahead. I believe you're especially going to come back to the section we're looking at today in the days ahead. As our culture gets more and more hostile to Christianity. For so long, I mean, persecution has been something that happens somewhere else. It's been removed from us in the West. We've had this extended time of peace in our ability to proclaim and worship Christ freely in, our, in the West. And we're thankful for that, but we're naive if we think that's the norm. That is not the norm. And it will not always be that way. And it's not the norm of the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about Christianity like that. The Bible doesn't speak of it in terms of we're going to be at peace with the world. We came to bring a, be a sword to divide. Our message does divide people between truth and darkness, light and darkness. You look at church history, that's not been the norm. It's always been persecution. And so how should we respond? And, and Peter has said several things, as I told you, and given us ways, but here today he gives us a brief summary, and I'm just going to take you through this summary. I think verse 19, if you're looking at the passage, verse 19 is kind of where he wants to get us to in verse 12. You see the word therefore in 19? It's just kind of like the, what's based on what I've just said, therefore, so the things he's saying in 12 through 18 kind of build to verse 19. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's sort of where he's going with this. I want you to be those who deposit your soul, deposit your soul with God. I want you to be those who keep on doing right and just deposit your soul with God. I want you to be those who just keep on doing right, no matter what the consequences are, and just keep depositing your soul with God. So he's gonna give some very practical things. I kind of divided it like this. Verse one, in the context of the fiery ordeal, which is basically symbolism for tribulation and persecution. You see that in verse 12. I just, did I say one? Verse 12. Verse 12, the fiery ordeal. He says, don't one, don't be surprised by it. Expect it. That's my first point. Expect it. That's Peter's first point. Expect it. Second point, verse 13 and 14, keep on rejoicing. You see that in verse 2? Keep on rejoicing. Oh man, what are you talking about? Keep on rejoicing. And thirdly, verse 15 through 18, make sure, make sure your suffering is not because of some sin that you're committing. Those are the three points that build up to verse 19. So let me see if I can get us there this morning. Because he wants you to apply verse 19. That's his application for you. And he gives you some principles to enable you and to help you do that. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Starts out with beloved, loved ones. Sometimes you don't feel like God loves you when you're going through something like this. God, have you abandoned me? God, do you not love me? That's normal thinking. Just a reminder in Peter's words here, he starts it out, this section with that. He's used that, in fact, in each of his other two sections of this book, starting it out with beloved, it's tenderness, affection, and it's, it's God does care. You are loved by God. Why is this happening? The circumstances might make you think you're not loved. He just reminds you that you're loved. And what he is saying to us in this first verse, of, in my first point in verse 12 is don't be shocked Don't be shocked that life is difficult. Don't be shocked that life is difficult. When someone takes issue with your testimony, don't be surprised. When someone, when you don't get that promotion you were wanting and it's because you're a Christian, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when your neighbor has a vendetta against you just because you're a Christian, just because you got up this morning and came to church, just because you're you're trying to teach your children a certain way. Just because you lose a friendship, Don't be shocked. That's his point. Don't be shocked. We have never been promised immunity from these kinds of trials and these kinds of persecutions and these kinds of tribulations. Expect it. Don't be surprised, verse 12 says, as though some strange thing is happening. This is is how you prepare for this. You expect it. You expect it. The word surprise, interesting. Remember, you know how it is when somebody comes knocking at your door? It's an uninvited guest, somebody you did not know was coming over. Maybe the preacher. You didn't know he was coming over. Unexpected. Unexpected. Oh, my goodness. What do you do? You clean the house. You send the kids to their rooms. You tell them to pick up all their toys. You put the dog out. You do all of this to prepare for the uninvited guest. His point is this. This is not an uninvited guest. Persecution is invited. You know it's coming to visit you. It's going to visit all of us if we desire to live a godly life. Don't treat it like as an uninvited guest. Oh, I wasn't ready. Oh, I wasn't prepared. I did not know you were coming. No, it's coming. Comes to all of us in certain degrees, but it's coming. Don't be surprised at suffering and persecution. The house should always be in order for this, expecting this. Why are Christians surprised? Well, I think, one, I said it earlier, there's just naive. Naive because they think that that's something that happens in other places, in other churches and other places around the world. Surely does not happen here. And that's dangerous thinking because it leaves you unprepared. Secondly, I think others are just deceived. Many Christians have been deceived. They've been deceived by the American prosperity gospel. They've been deceived into thinking that they, don't, they, they never heard a message about denying yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. They haven't heard that gospel presentation. They've heard, believe in Jesus, and you'll 
realize your great purpose in life. Believe in Jesus and all your problems he will take care of. Believe in Jesus and never entertain a negative thought again. That is what people have been hearing in America for a very long time. That is the gospel message. No, you don't, you don't do deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Those things te- teach of, one, self-denial. Two, take up your cross, instrument of death. Follow me. Well, I don't know where that's going to go. But I, don't, I know you don't have a place to lay your head at nights, I hear. That's what false teachers do. There was an article recently, I'm having a little trouble here, I apologize, let me get my microphone, get all the wire out of my back here. There was an article, I just read it this week, and maybe some of you saw it, but Christianity is shrinking in America. Two, two observations on, I would make to that. One is, I never thought it was that big anyway. I never thought true Christianity was that big anyway. Some of it, I'm glad, is shrinking away. Name only, cultural Christianity has been huge. But it only makes sense when you've given people a gospel that is not sustainable, entertainment, or everything's going to go good and well, and you're never going to have any problems. That just doesn't, that doesn't work in real life. And it's not the truth anyway. It's not a message that God blesses. People are finding out that that shallow gospel message doesn't sustain you through anything. That shallow gospel message just leaves you empty and scrambling to make life work on your own. That shallow message doesn't do anything to make you prepared for trials and tribulations. See, the the important question is, The important question is, why should we not be surprised? John, and here's the reasons. Here's what Jesus has said. It's so obvious. It's all over the scripture. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, 18, and 19, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, because you, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, because, the, because of this, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you. And listen to this from 1 Thess 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it has come to pass. And so people are surprised and saying, why is this happening And I think it's because we have not taken God's word serious on this subject. I don't think, people ask the question, why is there things like this going on in the world? And I say, that's the, you might be shocked, but I want to tell you something, God is not shocked by our world at all. He is not shocked. 
He knows human depravity. He has told us about the depraved heart. He has told us about all of the things that come out of the heart. He has told us about that when man turns his back on God, he goes his own way. None of this is shocking to God. And the world is filled with sinners who hate God. Men who love the darkness more than the light. They do not understand you and they do not understand me unless God does a work in their heart to open their eyes from the blindness. Such were some of us in walking down the path that many of them walked because we too once were in darkness. So Peter says, do not be surprised. And it says the divine purpose in that verse, there is a divine purpose in that. There is no wasted suffering when you're Christian. God uses it for a purpose. And that's his next point in, in that verse, verse 12. He calls it a fiery ordeal. That's like a, a furnace, but it's figurative to persecution and tribulation in this context. But it's, that's the furnace that they are in. A furnace is used for smelting metal, fine metal, to remove the dross and to remove, remove all the impurities. And that's what he is saying. This is for your testing. This is the purpose of this is to test you, to prove you, to, to remove the dross from your life. It's purification. It's to purify us. That's the testing. That's what testing is. He tests those whom he loves. Psalm 66.10, For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. It's unpleasant and it's painful, but folks, we don't develop very well without it. We really don't. Rarely do we develop when things are really going well. Growth requires pain and pressure. And God puts us in circumstances at times that we can't just rely on a cliche to get us out of it. We have to live through it. Tozier said this, It is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Sometimes that's true in your life. He has to hurt you deeply. so he can bless you greatly. It helps us to get focused in life when you remove things, the purifying, when you remove things that are distractions, when you remove my pet sins, when you, when you bring those to light, when you, when you do things in my life that cause me to get my focus back. The, the testing does that, it's purifying. His goal is my sanctification. His goal is I become more like Jesus. And the process is one of of testing. He uses his word and he uses trials to sanctify us, conforming us to the image of Christ. And so there's no purposeless uh, suffering. It all has a purpose. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what the trial is. I doubt if it's persecution and to the extent we're talking in this passage, but any trial, any trial, Embrace it. God, you brought this. There must be something in me that needs this. There must be something in me that 
It doesn't always have to be a sin, but there's something in me that's just living a fallen world and I've got exposure to a lot of things and distracted by a lot of things and maybe I just need to get my focus back and run the race and lay aside encumbrances or whatever. I guess you say for the church, it certainly keeps the focus of a church right. I mean, you just talk about when you're in the trenches of persecution, my goodness, you aren't worrying about all the little little personality quips that are, you know, quirks that are going on around you. You just say, survive. How do we survive this, God? How do we bring glory to you in the midst of this? And you know what else it does? And I just, I'm spending a lot of time on this one. I, well, we, I, we will get through this today, I guarantee you. But the point is, it proves the genuineness of your faith. That's the biggest thing a, a trial does. It's the biggest thing I think persecution does. It proves that you are genuine. That you truly belong to Christ. It, it tests the strength of your faith. And is it a true faith? You remember the, the parable of the sower, and he threw out the seed on the different soils. One of those soils was called the rocky soil. That was a soil that had a, a bedrock beneath the surface. You could not see it. It had some fertile soil, but then right below that was this bedrock. And the, the problem with that for a plant would be that it would start to grow, but then the roots could not go down very deep. They would hit that bedrock, and the plant would die. And you remember what Jesus said about that soil. He said, they hear the word of God. And there's, there's some response to that. There's some emotional response, gladly response, glad response to that word of God. And all of a sudden, up comes this plant. But then the heat the, the elements of the weather, the pressures of the heat and all of that wilt that plant. Why? Because that plant can't get its roots down to the water. Follow me? Folks, that is what has happened to so many people. When persecution comes, what does it do? It proves that those who the roots never took, who are not real, they flee, they run. Persecution does that. They're not going to hang around to be persecuted. They're not going to hang around to be mistreated unjustly. They're not going to be enduring because there's no reality in their salvation. Suffering reveals that they're not genuine. I think that's true today gets tough, it gets tough, it gets difficult, and people flee. And that's the purpose of persecution. I believe God wants a pure church. I don't believe God wants a lot of people hanging around the church that truly aren't Christians. I don't. That's the reason we have a new members class, and that's the reason we want to hear your testimony, and that's because we want people to come into our church. I told them last week in our new members class, I want, we want Christians in our church. Non-Christians are welcome to attend, great. But if you want to become a member, we want you to be a part of the body of Christ. We want to hear your testimony. We want to hear how God transformed and changed you. We want to know that you are one who has continued in the faith because the roots have gone down and he's holding on to you as you hold on to him. 
Deuteronomy 8, or excuse me, a verse I, I use in, and we use in biblical counseling a lot is Deuteronomy 8, chapter 2. You shall remember all the ways the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. This is in Deuteronomy. In context, the children of Israel have been led in the wilderness for 40 years. He says, why did I do that? Why did I, God do that? To humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep my commandments or not. The purpose of the testing was to, to reveal your heart. What kind of heart have you got? And see, if you're a, if you're a non-believer, if the testing reveals to you that my faith is not real, the hope is that you repent and believe. If the testing proves you're a believer, but your faith needs to grow in certain areas, that's great. We all need that. Testing shows me that sometimes, right? I really, I really need to work on my thought life. I really need to work on my, my way I treat my wife, or I need to work on uh, diligence and in, in leading in, in church. I think I need, trials do that. Testing do that. So, I need to realize that I need to be prepared but I need to be expectant. Verse 12, not surprised. I should be expecting trials. Secondly, go to verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 4, 13 and 14. He says, rejoice in it. I read that and I go, yeah, that's it. I, yeah, that just sounds uh, really good, you know. How, how do I go about that? And that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Rejoice. There's nothing feels right about that. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, that's a key statement there. Look at it. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also as the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Get some look into the second coming when you're really going to rejoice. Verse 14, if you're reviled for, for the name of Christ, notice you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I love this verse. Got to think about it for a moment. Christians are prompted here to rejoice. That's a common statement that's made in Romans and, and in James. When you encounter various trials, rejoice. Rejoice because we know God is sovereign. We know God brings those things. We know God, in, there's no mistakes with God. He, he is the one that brings those afflictions into our lives. Don't think you're a victim of the devil. You know, God, God, the devil is God's devil. The devil. If God wants to use the devil to do something like he did in Job's life, he'll do that. But the point is, it's God. And so he says, how are we supposed to, the question is, how are we supposed to do this when affliction is present? He gives the word degree there, to the degree or to the extent uh, of your faithfulness. Uh, he talks about the sufferings of Christ and you're identifying with the sufferings of Christ. This is, this is a key, key thought here. Um, think of it like this. I did not, I cannot duplicate what Christ did on the cross. I cannot share in the kind of sufferings that Jesus went through on the cross. That was redemption. He did that. Only Christ could have done that, that kind of suffering. What we're talking about is the sufferings Christ experienced as living in this world, the experience of rejection, the experience of being mocked, the experience of being uh, 
<laughs> times he would say things and, and they would get offended at him and call him the devil or the, the, the times he would speak the truth in love and, and cause almost a riot. Those are the sufferings we're talking about, the, the, the being ostracized, um, falsely accused and rejected. Those are the sufferings we're talking about. The more I, to the degree I share in those kinds of sufferings, that's what the, Peter's saying, that to that degree, there is an equivalent to the degree of that kind of thing and to the kind of joy you're going to have in your life at the second coming of Christ. There is a connection between sharing in the sufferings of Christ, the degree of that, the higher the degree of that, the greater the rejoicing one day when you rejoice at the exaltation when Christ comes back. We can also rejoice now, present tense. We can also rejoice now. We should be rejoicing now, recognizing that one day our rejoicing is going to be even greater than it is now. We recognize that we are identifying with Christ when we suffer. We're saying he went through these things. I too share in those sufferings to some degree. Um, He was ridiculed and mocked. I too, at times, maybe ridiculed and mocked. Identify with Christ. There's a certain comfort in that. There's a, a certain comfort in that fact that I get to identify with Christ. It's what Peter, was it John? Peter and John, maybe? I can't remember who came out of the, the meeting with the Sanhedrin. They were flogged and all of that. They came out rejoicing that they were able to suffer persecution for Christ, to have that kind of identification with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Notice he says this, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. What does he mean? Let me show you where I've been beaten. Let me show you where I've been tortured. Let me show you where I've been flogged. Let me show you the marks on my body. He says, you want to see my trophy case? This is my trophy case. Just look at my body. This is the brand marks of Jesus all over me. Scars, and I receive them because of him. I receive them because they can't get to him. They hate him, but he's not here. I'm here. I identify with him, and they persecute me. That's what that verse is talking about. We identify with that. Any, any degree of rejection you feel and hear or sense or get from somebody, you can go back and say, my Savior, my Savior went through that too. And I can rejoice in that. I can rejoice in that. I have the privilege to suffer for Him and with Him. He says, Paul said all of that was a badge of honor to him. For to you it has been granted, Philippians 1.29, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but, to, but also to suffer for his sake. That is what's been granted to you, to believe and to suffer for his sake. We are, Philippians 3.10, to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. So I want to, I want to know the comfort that comes to me from the one who's endured everything 
that I'm going to endure. I look to Christ for that comfort. So therefore, I can keep on rejoicing so the revelation of his glory, I may rejoice with exultation. And it's, it's not some fleeting moment of happiness. Rejoice. It's not a fleeting moment of happiness. It's not some earth born, manufactured joy. It's not some cliche, oh, I'm just going to rejoice. No, it's not that. It's inexpressible. Um, it's, it's words that have a sense of joy that Christians can have now and one day, even in a greater sense, at the return of Christ. I think verse 14 explains it even better. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, that means if you're insulted for the name of Christ or mistreated for the name of Christ because you identify with Christ, he says you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You are blessed in the midst of the sufferings for righteousness' sake because the Holy Spirit comes to you in a way he may not otherwise. It kind of reminds me of dying grace. I've been with people who have been near death and Christians and near death and they're not scared of it. Well, they're going to miss their families. They aren't excited about that. But they're not scared to die. There's a dying grace. I think there's a dying person. I think there's a persecution grace being talked about here. When you are persecuting for his sake, when you're being persecuted for his sake, what does he say? He says, when you're mistreated for identifying with Christ, you're blessed. It's not a giddy feeling, but you're benefited. That's the word. You're benefited. It's not subjective. It's, it's, a, it's a, an objective presence. Rest on you. Unaffected by hostility. Transcending the physical pain. It's kind of what Peter, not Peter, but Stephen did in Acts 6. Seven, Acts, somewhere. <laughs> Remember when he was stoned and he had that, his face, it's like he was unaffected. Unaffected by what was going on around him. It was that persecution grace. It's, it's what Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've ever looked at that book, I don't, it's not an easy read, I wouldn't advise it for pleasurable reading, but the point is, those people sang as they were burning. They sang as lions were being turned loose in them. They were singing. Come on, where does that come from? So I'm talking about this persecution, grace, suffering for his sake, experiencing something that's not subjective, but something that is very objective. This presence, this benefit. I don't get dying grace until I'm dying. I don't get persecution grace until I'm being persecuted. But the grace will be there. The grace will be there. That's what Peter is saying. And then I, I need to get to this. Verses 15 through 18, very quickly. I need to consider why I'm suffering. I need to ask myself, why am I suffering? Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. 
So in verse 15, he lists some crimes. Murderer and thief, you know what that is. Evildoer, everything else. Troublesome meddler. Some people have said that's busybody, and that's true. You can say a busybody, somebody that's into everybody else's business and that kind of thing. You could call somebody that. But you know what? Another interpretation of that, and Hebert really explains this well in his commentary. I thought it was a very, very excellent. He says that it refers to a political agitator. Go home and be blessed by that. Someone who wants to create and agitate the political system. He really develops that well. I encourage you, if you don't take my word for it, that's kind of interesting. I have not even seen that until I did that. But someone who wants to bring about a a disruptive revolt. Interesting. Like a revolutionary. And and it really fits here because why would you have crimes listed that are not punishable by prison or something and all of a sudden come up with some busybody? No, it's got to be something serious like this. And if anything could bring persecution on us, it's people who want to just agitate the system, not for the will of God, but for some other agenda. Just because they got a certain political view that they think is, is not rooted in anything about Christ. It's just their political view and they want to agitate the system for it. Thought that was interesting, thought it was interesting, but I think it fits, I think that's a better interpretation of that word, a good interpretation of that word, because all of these are punishable things, serious, punishable by prison or death. And and it would only make sense this would be one like that. Verse 16 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, the word Christian was a derogatory term, by the way. It it was only the third time it's used in the whole New Testament, is right here in, Chapter 4, verse 16. This is the last time it's used in the New Testament. But it was a derogatory term, little Christ, some say. People who walk around talking about Jesus, wanting to be obedient to Jesus. It was derogatory. It was not something that Christians gave themselves that name. It was given to them by the unbelieving world for Christ followers. It's used in Acts 26 when King Agrippa says, Paul, you almost convinced me to be a Christian. It's a, it's a mocking term. Reproachable. So Peter uses it here. And um, Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, see, this is a point. He says, make sure you're suffering as a Christian. Don't suffer for these other things. Ask yourself, why am I suffering? You want to bring glory to him. Verses 17 and 18 are interesting. This is continuation of the thought here, but it says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, suffering represents a judgment of God. But for us as Christians, it's not a condemnation judgment. It's a purifying judgment, a chastening judgment And we should be thankful for that. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so we will not be condemned along with the world. That's an important verse. We are disciplined when we are judged, so we will not be condemned with the world. That's kind of what this verse is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 4. He is saying that, And this last time, for it is time, 
for judgment to begin, that Christians are going to experience these kinds of judgments. They're part of the plan. Not condemnation, but trials and persecutions and challenges and difficulties to what? Make us more useful, to purify us and to test us and to purge the church, cleansing the true from the false. And so if this judgment begins in God's house, what will become of those who do not belong to God? Have you ever said that to God? God, if you treat your friends like this, I hate to think what you're going to do to your enemies. Have you ever felt that way when you're going through trial? Well, that's the, there's truth in that. What you're going through is nothing compared to what the unbeliever is going to experience. He disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us to conform to his holiness. That is not the true true for the unbeliever. Richard Caldwell says this, it could be worse, I could be lost. I could be the persecutor, I could be lost in darkness, I could be the one who hates God and hates the gospel. That's, how, that's, how you're, that's your mindset. You're going, man, it is, it is difficult for me to go through this chastening by God, but think about the unbeliever and what they will face. I'm saved, I'm, I'm just being disciplined, I'm so thankful. I'm going through a fiery tri- trial, but it's far worse to fall into the hands of an angry God. Verse 18 says, and if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Quoting from, I believe, the book of Proverbs, but you know what it is? Working out your salvation is hard. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. Nobody in this room can work for their salvation. You cannot ever earn your salvation. But as Christians, we are working out our salvation, and that is very hard. Living each day to the glory of God and seeking to please Him and walk in obedience to Him, that is very hard. It's difficult living in this world as a Christian. He says, if it's difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Let me read to you 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn there. 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Hold your hand in 1 Peter. I'm going to bring you right back there and close this up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. This is verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Therefore, we speak proudly of you among the churches of God for our perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. You are going through God's righteous judgment, Christian, when you are being persecuted and when you are suffering. Verse 6, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Back to 1 Peter 4. Brings us to his application. Verse 19. 
Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Understanding that suffering is inevitable, understanding that suffering is, corrective, is used to correct us and to purify us, to make us more effective, to be rejoiced in. He says, now take your soul, take your soul and deposit it with your faithful creator. That's what entrust means. Entrust your soul. Ha. Entrust is what Jesus did on the cross. Father, I give you my spirit. I just entrust myself to you. See, I cannot be worried about the consequences for doing what is right. The fo- my focus is not the consequences for doing what is right. I am just to do what is right and entrust my soul Deposit my soul with God. That's what he's saying in this verse. You're going to get persecuted for doing what is right. You're going to get persecuted for saying what is right. But he's saying don't stop doing what is right. Just keep doing what is right and entrusting and depositing your soul with God. See? We just keep doing that to keep committing to him everything for that day. Spurgeon said, consequences are not our concern, just doing what is right. Spurgeon also said, we cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the heart of God. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted Christ, I just say this to you, I beg you to respond, to cry out to him for salvation. It's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And if you're a sinner that has not been saved by the grace of God and put your faith and trust in Christ, God is angry at you. He's angry at the sinners every day, as the psalmist says. He's angry at sin. And if you die without Christ, you will fall into the hands of an angry God who will deal out retribution that we just read a little while ago. Hell awaits you. An eternal hell awaits you. Our message is this. God offers salvation through Christ. Embrace Christ. Trust Christ. The sufferings that we experience as Christians, they're no fun. They're no fun. But we have joy in the midst of them. And we know they're working for a greater cause, a greater purpose. We know that they're purifying us and making us more useful and making us more focused. We know they have a purpose. They're not just meaningless events. And we know that one day we will rejoice in his presence. That he will be our shield from God's judgment. That he is our shield from God's judgment. We all deserve judgment, but for the believer, faith in Christ gives us a shield from God's judgment because he absorbed God's judgment for us. I invite you to put your faith and your trust in him and trusting your soul to your faithful creator as well. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and your truth. A lot here, Father. But I know, God, I'm going to be running back to this passage many times in the months and years ahead. 
I'm going to be running back to these verses, reminding myself of how you say we are to prepare ourselves for the difficult days ahead. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.